poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is the author of Play Optimal Poker 1 and 2 and the host of the Thinking Poker podcast, the bearded wonder himself, Andrew Brokos. Brokos's resume includes being a coach at both Red Chip Poker and Tournament Poker Edge, writing regularly for 2 Plus 2 Magazine, and was also a past contributor to Card Player Magazine, as well as a sponsored PokerStars Pro. Oh yeah, he's also pretty good at playing cards as well. He has close to a million dollars in cashes in the live MTT arena, but his bread and butter has been terrorizing the fine citizens in the cash game streets of online poker. Brokos is one of the genuine good human beings in the world of poker, who as far as I can tell always tries to create as much value as he possibly can for anyone who consumes his content. In today's conversation, Brokos and I are going to dive deep into a whole host of subjects, including our deep love for Thinking Poker co-host and CPG regular Carlos Welch, solvers, tells, and c-bets, oh my, being at peace with making decisions despite feeling loads of uncertainty, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you world-class podcaster, author, teacher, and poker player, the great Andrew Brokos. Mr. Brokos, welcome back to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you been? Oh, thank you for uh, having me, Brad. It's, it's my honor. And uh, I have been, I've, I've taken to telling people uh, I'm doing well, all things considered, but there's been a lot to consider. But yeah, uh, I don't know. Well, I feel like, at least here in the United States, uh, I feel like things are kind of turning a corner. I know worldwide, uh, it's not, the picture is not so rosy. But uh, personally, I'm, uh, I got my first vaccine shot. I'm getting the next one this coming Monday. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, I was telling my wife the other day, it's, if you would have told me like two years ago that like getting a vaccine was like a talking point and people <laughs> celebrating, like she, nobody would have ever believed me, you know? Well, as soon as I got my first one, it was like every conversation now I start with that where I'm like, I got mine. Did you get yours yet? Like it's <laughs> me too. Um, I'm like, Hey, I got vaccinated today. Like it, it's like this point of pride and like, thank God we're taking steps to kind of, you know, go back to being able to just eat have a dinner with our friends in public, you know, and that's, yeah, it's something that I'll be grateful for for the rest of my life because of this experience. Yeah, I do think that's, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not a big fan of the, just like look for the silver lining on everything kind of (laughs) approach, but I I do think there are like real, real silver linings that, that can come out of something like this. And, um, yeah, I mean, just having that sort of increase. I, I'm just having like remembering this time last year. There was some amount of kind of not not quite food insecurity, but like that supply chain was a little bit disrupted. And you know, grocery stores, toilet paper was like the famous one. But there were like certain items that were kind of hard to find in grocery stores sometimes. And I at least had the sense of like this could get a lot worse. You know, it ended up going in the opposite direction. But I was like, there could be a real you know a, a sort of 
shortage of, uh, of food, at least short term in, in the US. And I think not taking that kind of stuff for granted is, is good for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And like you said, we're very fortunate that the, the food chain was resilient enough so that that didn't come to to pass. Um, I would say on the toilet paper front, I mean, I, I, whenever the, the whole toilet paper debacle was going down, my first thing was like, let's just buy a bidet and see what happens. Right. Because it, it's always seemed weird to me. And this is a weird place for the chasing poker greatness podcast. <laughs> but let's we'll um, go straight to ass wiping. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to go straight there in that wiping your ass is like, it's such a, th- cultural thing that like we don't even think about doing it like about washing our our butt off like when we're done using the bathroom but like if you think about it it makes a lot of sense in that that's the only area of our body that we don't just wash right like that that we that we just like touch touch it with toilet paper and now i actually feel weird going through the regular routine after Mm -hmm. doing my business because it's like oh this just feels kind of gross like i'm just (laughs) Anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm not excited. My understanding is the paper is actually doing very little. I mean, the, the important part is like washing your hands after you use it because, uh, you know, and there are cultures, right? I mean, and certainly historically, that was the case where like people were just wiping with their bare hands. And um, I think the paper is, I mean, it makes you feel better that it's there. But like, in terms of uh, how much like germs that you're getting on your hands, uh, I don't think it's really preventing that much. So the, the, the washing is, is uh really the, the important part. But I, I think you're right. It is sort of a, a ridiculous solution and better technology exists. And I think that could be one of the um, one of the upsides is, is our transitioning to a better and more sustainable uh, solution to that particular longstanding problem in human civilization. There we go. This is the way we start off CPG. So let's catch up in what's been going down in your world since the last time you were on the show. You have to remind me, when was the last? Was it like two years or something? Well, the podcast actually hasn't existed for two years well, yet. I we're, guess it has not been two years. Yeah, it's been it's been probably like a year. I believe we were entering. To, to be fair, this year has felt a little longer than a year. It's felt like a bajillion years. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's just felt very, very, very long. It was probably right around the time lockdown was going down, and we were kind of just settling into the the pandemic stuff. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I have not played live poker since then. Um, I had probably even stopped playing by the time that I spoke to you. I'm optimistic that I may play as little as like two weeks from now, Um, but I I have not started, resumed playing yet. And uh, I've been playing online. My options are pretty limited in Maryland, so it's really just been America's card room for me, which is not fantastic. Uh, Yeah, I'm mostly just kind of playing tournaments on Sundays. But I was concerned, you know, I didn't know, like if I wasn't playing live poker, online poker options weren't great. And um, I didn't know how, you know, coaching was going to be affected by that either. Like the, the idea would be, okay, I can just maybe do more coaching and that'll make up for not playing as much. But I didn't know, like if other people are also not playing poker or if other people are, you know, losing jobs and things like that, does that mean, uh, and really the opposite happened. Like I've had more coaching business than ever, which was fantastic um, in terms of, you know, not not really feeling that lost work from uh, from not being able to play live poker. And I think some of that was, it's people who had either never played online poker before or had not, you know, in 10 years since, since Black Friday played online poker and now they were starting to, and they're like, you know, can you show me in some cases it's been as simple as like teaching people how to use HUDs, you know, like that's some of what I've done. And then some of it is just, you know, there's uh, live or online poker obviously emphasizes different skills than, uh, than live does. So there's some people who are, they're very accustomed to playing a game that's tailored around 
either you know awareness of, of physical tells or just they're playing with a regular group of people and they know how to play against that group of people and then they're playing online and they're like everyone's three betting what do i do so uh yeah i've, I've done a lot of that kind of stuff which has been I mean, it was nice to have that uh, opportunity and i heard through a little bird that when you were diving back into the online streets you sought out coaching yourself uh which impressed me that, uh, you know, Carlos was on and he told me that, uh, he, he got to coach you, which was a great experience for him. Could you tell me about you seeking out coaching as you were drive, diving back into online poker? Uh, yeah, I mean, just, you know, he, he has more experience than I do. Uh, well, so first I'm happy to have any excuse to talk to Carlos. Like, uh, I, I would, we ended up working it out and like, we, we turned it into a product that we, we sold and he's getting most of the proceeds from. So I didn't end up paying from, for this, but like, that was one of the options was I was just going to pay him for this. And like, honestly, just like paying to talk to Carlos, even if it's not, you know, even if I weren't getting, learning anything from it, like, you know, very fair priced for the opportunity to talk to Carlos for a few hours. But, um, yeah, I mean, he that's what he does day in and day out is he plays in these kind of like small stakes online tournaments. And most of the work, especially with writing my books and stuff, most of the work that I've done recently has been very like game theory focused. And I'm always aware when I'm working on that, that you know, my goal when I'm thinking about game theory, working with a solver or anything is never how do I just replicate exactly what the solver would do when I'm actually playing poker. Like, I, I mean, I fully believe in you know, trying to exploit the mistakes your opponents are likely to make, but I just trust that Carlos, you know, that's really been his main focus is, is playing in these smaller stakes tournaments and has a better sense of what kind of mistakes people are going to make. And uh, his his study is not necessarily solver focused, but that's what makes it valuable is that he can kind of say, well, here's what I tend to do in these spots. And then we're comfortable enough with each other that I can have that pushback and say, well, so here, like from a theoretical standpoint, here's why I think that's a problem. And then he can maybe say, well, yeah, but people don't actually do that thing. So it's fine. But, you know, we get to sort of reach that, uh, that understanding. And I think that dynamic, I mean, ended up turning it into a good product also, but that really was not like, my number one objective was talk to Carlos. And my number two objective was uh, learn just for my own purposes, how to better approach these uh, smaller stakes games. Yeah. And it, it, it makes a ton of sense that you seek out somebody that basically has experiences that you don't have and has created, you know, basically they know what people are doing. They've experienced it. They've gone through it for years and they're just communicating that information to you. And then you get to use that moving forward, which just is kind of invaluable, right? To your, your poker game. It expedites your progress. It means that you don't have to experience all that stuff first to develop, then develop the strategy. So yeah, it's just, that's why poker coaching just in general is just always, in my opinion, worth its weight in gold, especially when you find somebody that you trust, that you work well with. You, you just can't really even put a price on how much money it earns you over time. That was the other reason I was really eager to work with Carlos in particular. And this is why I've not generally sought out, I mean, maybe it's just my own sort of like uh, insecurity or irrationality uh, trust issues. But you know, I know how diligent I am as a coach. And I know at least some other people, and I guess I'm getting a very skewed view of this because like I sometimes get people coming to me for coaching who are like, oh, I used to work with so-and-so and he wasn't really that helpful or, you know, he didn't do this. He was sort of dismissive. So I'm only hearing from the dissatisfied guy. Like, I'm not getting a lot of people who are like, if they were happy with that guy, they didn't come to me. Um, but so I kind of have this sense of like, oh, many other people who are out there are either they're, you know, I, I don't know that I'm looking to pay like a thousand dollars an hour for coaching. Um, so, you know, if I wanted to get like a, like if hire Phil Galfond or somebody to be my coach, like I'm sure he would work hard, but I don't know if I want to pay quite that much. So then it's like, well, uh, I don't know. I just, I've always sort of doubted or, or, or had an insecurity about whether people were going to like put the kind of effort in that I would 
want them to. And I know, because I've talked to Carlos about what his coaching looks like, I know how much, and frankly, he puts too much effort into it, I think. <laughs> I did, we did eventually convince him to raise his, uh, the price that he was charging, because um, yeah, I think he was doing, he was just giving people too good of a deal, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to take a little bit, a little bit of credit for that, because that was, the in our second conversation that we had, that was the main focus. I was like, dude, you got to double your rates. Like, what are you if, doing? If you'll notice, Brad, I said we convinced him. Oh, we. I, I didn't know if you were talking <laughs> me and you. Um, but yeah, like he, he still needs to raise his rates, quite honestly. They're they're still still too small, but I guess it, it's baby steps. But yeah, it's uh, Carlos, just a, a great dude. I, I hope he just comes on the show forever. Um, don't tell him that I would pay him to, to come on either. Uh, <laughs> we'll keep that to ourselves. Um, how do you feel about your poker game coming out of the pandemic and going to play live poker for the first time in the past year plus? Um, I think I'm going to reserve judgment until I actually do it. I think you know, I've, I've mostly been playing tournaments online. I've not like, I don't think the ACR cash games are really all that good. So it's, you know, when I do step back, you know, hopefully like I would rather be playing, you know, kind of higher stakes live cash when I go back to playing live primarily. Um, so a lot of the study I've been doing in the last year has been very tournament focused in playing with wider ranges, playing with shallower stacks. And, uh, I've always, it's always been a little bit of a challenge for me. Like at WSOP, I've, I've stopped trying to play cash games during the WSOP. I used to try to go back and forth and I find, you know, I, I kind of want to be in one kind of mindset or another because when I'm in cash games and I flop bottom pair, I'm like, all right, set blocker, let's go big bluff. And like, you know, when you're 25 big blinds deep in a tournament, like that's not a good <laughs> mindset to be in. Um, so, you know, just being able to go back and forth between those things. So I, I'm curious to see, you know, how much, uh, how much my, I mean, ideally, like, it's not like the tournament studying is completely irrelevant to, to playing cash games, as long as you know how to make the right adjustments. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what it's going to feel like. This is certainly the longest I've ever gone without playing uh, live poker. Yeah. I mean, they're just different games. Like MTTs and cash are, are just different games. They're treated differently. They're played differently. There's different considerations. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see for you how, you know, your online adding in the exploitative strategies that you and Carlos have uh, communicated back and forth with each other, how, it, you know, if you find extra edges that you wouldn't have found otherwise, right? Yeah. So let's imagine that there's a, a greatest hits collection for the best stories that you've collected. Uh, Let me start this question over again. Uh, imagine there's a greatest hits collection for the best stories that you, Andrew Brokos, have accumulated in your career traveling and playing cards, tell me a story that's on that greatest hits collection. Uh, there's one that comes to mind immediately, which is um, I was at, uh, I guess it was Maryland Live. And uh, one thing that I've, I've, I've always found kind of interesting about poker, and we've tried to have a few people on, on the Thinking Poker podcast that reflect this, is that it is a game that can be played by people with like pretty significant physical limitations. You know, I've played with uh, players who are blind. I've played with people who are you know largely paralyzed. Either in one case it was an accident. In some cases, it's people with you know various like I don't want to guess on the wrong thing, but you know they have you know various uh, conditions where they're pretty limited in their ability to use their hands or whatever. And to see the adaptations that, that people can make, and that you know that you can still enjoy these games together when you know it's not like we could go out and play soccer together or something but like we can sit around and play poker together so anyway i'm sitting next to a person who's um 
in a wheelchair clearly has like very limited mobility and um I'm trying to be like as accommodating as possible, make sure he's got enough room next to me, that kind of thing. And uh, he he says to me, you know, could you do me a favor? And I was like, oh yes, absolutely. How can I help you? How can I make your your time in, in this great game? You know, how can I better accommodate you? He's like, could you take a picture of that waitress? Could you take a picture of that waitress's big ass titties for me? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So did you? <laughs> that's a follow up. I, I, I told him I told him that if he asked her permission, I would I would take a picture. Um he I think he did ask if he could take a picture with her, but they didn't end up doing it for some reason. But yeah, I I put the onus on him to get permission for that first. <laughs> yeah, probably not a not a thing that you want to do, just go rogue and do. <laughs> right, right. Um but actually now that I think about it, there's a second story that also involved um uh, it was a player who was deaf. And uh there's actually Maryland has I've been meaning to um interview someone related to this, but I haven't actually done it yet. Maryland has a deaf poker tour, which is entirely like a, you know, a league of, of deaf or hard of hearing players. Uh, they have some open events where anyone can play, but you're allowed to communicate using American Sign Language. Um, and then there's other events that are like only for deaf or hard of hearing people. So this particular player, it was, I think that event was going on, may have been why he was at the casino, but we were playing in a cash game together. And um, again, I, I could, you know, I knew that he was deaf, so I was trying to be better about verbalize or not verbalizing. <laughs> I was trying to be better about, you know, like if I, if I made a bet and I could tell that he couldn't see how much it was, I might like hold up finger, you know, I bet 600, I'll hold up six fingers or something like that. Right. So, um, usually I'm very like impassive when I'm like, I, I go for the full Tommy Angelo mum poker, like don't move, don't talk way in a significant pot kind of thing. So I've, I've made a big bet on the river and, um, he's thinking about what he wants to call me and I can kind of see, I'm sort of staring at a spot on the table, but I can see out of the corner of my eye that he's making some kind of motion and i'm like thinking he's having trouble figuring out how much the bet is so i look up to like do my usual hand signal to tell him how much the bet was and i see what he's actually doing is he's pantomiming like reeling in a fish um, with <laughs> so i just like so i give like a very genuine laugh um which i think is you know, I, I was value betting i I, you know, I wanted him to call me and um he did fold which maybe he was going to fold anyway but i know that that is a reliable tell of if someone is relaxed enough that they can laugh in a genuine way uh that is a good indicator of, of strength i like to think that i'm in general fairly difficult to read at the table but um he definitely got me with with that one and, and maybe have gotten some useful information out of me oh yeah he he gotcha um that that's that's a good one that's a real good one yeah so my only uh, my only story, I guess, in this related to this would be at the WSOP. So I, I don't really go to the WSOP like ever. Um, I believe that I went in like 2012 or 2013. I can't remember the exact year. Probably the year directly following Black Friday because it just seemed like the thing to do. But I, I was playing with a a disabled guy. We were we became quite friendly. I, I mean, he told me a story, everything that happened, like wrestling around with a friend of his. They fell like 20 or 30 feet when they were young and basically got paralyzed and was uh, in a wheelchair. And we had played for like ever. You know, it was like 14 hours. And it was one of those that it was like four or five in the morning. And, you know, like my body was just sore and cramping and I couldn't get comfortable in the chair. And I just made like the offhand comment that my legs were killing me. And he just kind of like sat there and looked up at me and he was like, must be nice. And, <laughs> and I was just like immediately, like he was fucking around, you know, he, he was saying it to just like 
uh, bust my balls. Yeah, probably not the first time he's used that line. Oh, but... <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it was immediate just horror on my face. Like, oh, <laughs> Brad, you are such an asshat. Um, let's go back to the, the beginning of your poker journey. And uh, I want to ask you, who's the biggest influence in you turning pro? Um, I don't know if I would point to a single person, but I mean, definitely the early, like in the 2005, 2006 kind of time, uh, the two plus two forums were actually a really valuable source of information. I don't get the sense that a lot of valuable stuff is happening there, at least from, I mean, I think there's still like kind of valuable community stuff happening there in terms of like uh, discussing scandals and stuff like that. But um, in terms of actual poker strategy, I don't think that's where it's at anymore. But um, that really was where I got the idea that it was a viable thing to do. I mean, I was just kind of playing sit and go. I wanted to get good at playing sit and goes or like make some money playing online poker. Uh, But seeing those community of people who were actually doing this and had kind of figured out like, both the logistics of how to do it and sort of some like basic strategies that worked and having being able to participate in this, this community, be a member of it, talk to other people, meet people who actually were, it made, that, it made it seem realistic to me. It did not seem like something, and it was, I mean, there were far more, many, many new professional poker players were created in like 2004, 2005, 2006, obviously. Um, but yeah, just sort of seeing that as a, a viable thing to do. Yeah. The two plus two forums, it's always struck me as such a wasted opportunity back then for just creating training. Like two plus two had everything. They had everybody. Everybody was on two plus two. I mean, like Tom Dwan, like all these, you know, Phil Galfond, the the killers, the crushers, the legend, they all posted on two plus two. And like, it, it's always struck me as a, a missed opportunity because like, they had all the resources and everybody was going there. If they would have been like card runners or one of the first places, um, what could have been with two plus two, but now I mean, I, I'm sure they could have made more money. I think they made a shit ton of money off of affiliate links anyway. Like, oh, I'm, I'm sure I, they made I, a I think they yeah. did just fine. <laughs> yeah. It's, my, my heart is not bleeding for them. Yeah. I'm not saying my heart is bleeding. It's just, you know, no, I hear you. over time, I think the talent has left to create their own training sites and kind of do their own thing. And that's why it just, you know, has changed over the past 15 years or so. What would you say is your poker superpower? Uh, I think being willing to question received wisdom are kind of the obvious play in, in any given situation and to really want to understand, you know, everyone has to learn poker in a heuristic sort of way where, you know, of course the answer to every poker question is it depends, but that's not really a useful thing to tell a beginner. So everyone kind of starts by learning some simple rules, always do this, never do that, et cetera. And um, I think that getting better at poker is a process of constantly, because like everyone learns those same rules. Like once you're playing in a game where people are remote, even just like a two, five live game, a lot of people already know some of those basic rules. So if all you're doing is like, I mean, I guess there's still a skill in implementing those rules a little bit better than other people do, being a little more disciplined with your preflop stuff or whatever, but that's not really going to give you a big advantage in, in the game. I think you know, the process of getting better at poker is being willing to continually find the exceptions to those things and be able to say, well, yeah, of course, like, usually you're going to call all in with ace-king when you're getting three to one preflop, but like, I mean, every once in a while, maybe it's not correct to do that. And like knowing what are the conditions where it's not, or like, yeah, just, you know, always being able to, to understand the why behind things and to know, or to be able to figure out when to make the exceptions and also how to, like, once you understand the why behind those rules, then you also learn 
how to apply those concepts in less familiar situations. So, you know, if you know that it's right to do such and such in a certain situation, then like when you encounter a different situation that's unfamiliar, if you can apply the logic behind the, uh, the, the rule that you're familiar with, that can help you handle an unfamiliar situation better. Yeah, I mean, just <clears throat> engaging and exploring your curiosity and just kind of trying to prove things um, just like, okay, this is the conventional wisdom. Like if basically, I think the long and short of it is if you just played through the conventional wisdom that everybody accepted as the capital T truth, well, you wouldn't have a very significant edge in the game that you're playing against, right? Like developing the edge is kind of figuring out what people, even higher level players are doing incorrectly or aren't doing excellently. Um, and then diving down that, you know, it's like basically, Early on, it's finding a good move, and that's good enough. But then once you've got the good moves down pat, you need to start looking for a better move and consistently just looking for upgrades and improvements that you can find. Yeah, upgrades is a good way of putting that. I like that term. Yeah, Actually, going, <laughs> going back to the uh, two plus two forums, I have a distinct memory because you know when uh, when the first Harrington Hold'em book came out, uh, that really was like a seismic blast in in the poker world in terms of introducing people. Like we can look back on it now; it's easy to find you know stuff that's wrong in there. But uh, at the time, it was like a huge step forward for, for a lot of people, myself included, just the idea of like a continuation bet. Just like, wait, even if you don't have anything, you could just bet the flop anyway. You know, um, that was like eye-opening. And um, so that kind of became the received wisdom. And I think for some people, it's still like, I think there are still some people who are like basically just playing Harrington on Hold'em, even though that's like a 10-year-old book. Like that's, they, like they haven't really upgraded. Uh, but I remember a conversation, and it must have been not too long after that book came out, that I read on 2 Plus 2 forums, and I was probably not sophisticated enough at the time to like fully appreciate it but it was just about you know just does continuation betting really make sense and this is specifically in the context of you've been called by a player who has position on you and then just assume that you knew if, if you were forced to either 100 bet or 100 check those are the only thing two things you could do um how could betting possibly be the better one of those like if you were the imposition player if you knew your opponent either had to bet or had to check like why wouldn't you want them to like be forced to put money in in the pot like so it, it kind of can't be correct from a theoretical perspective that you just like fire at every single flop blindly when you've been called by a player who has position on you and it may have worked at the time because people were sort of too loose and too passive with their pre-flop calling ranges and then giving up too easily to flopping mean, it may have worked as an exploit at the time but from a theoretical perspective it was wrong <laughs> like you definitely are not supposed to have a high flop bet frequency when a player in position calls you assuming that that's a, a good player with a well-constructed pre-flop range who knows how to play after the flop and only in retrospect do i fully appreciate i mean i found that like a kind of thought-provoking concept at the time but it wasn't anything i really like did a lot with uh but looking back on it i'm like oh that person was really in something yeah and you know what's funny but it is like i don't know what dan harrington's sort of image is now i mean he's retired from poker he's pretty much just living a low-key life i assume but like you know the whole thing was action dan that he's you know nitty and tight and doesn't really get involved and I don't think that was necessarily the case, especially when, you know, we're talking about Harrington on Hold'em and like C-betting 100% of the time. I know that a good friend of mine, probably back in like 2008 or so, played in a cash game of commerce uh, against Dan Harrington. And basically his only comment was he's not 
action Dan, he's not, uh, he, he's in there mixing it up more often than I think people kind of gave him credit for, but that's just a testament to kind of, I guess how he built his image and his persona over time. Like basically everybody looks at him as a tightish player. Then when he gets out of line, nobody really suspects it, which maybe he's just like, you know, playing the 4d chess with building his reputation out. There's um there's a woman I've done some coaching with who is in her seventies and uh, she's a very sweet woman and and we kind of play in the same area in the mid Atlantic so like when she sees me a tournament or something she'll like run over and give me a hug and like so oh, you're, you're such a good coach you're my coach and I'm like I I appreciate this this is very nice it's a lovely way to start my day but like don't like no one thinks that you would play like everyone who looks at you is going to expect you to play a certain way. And if those people then see you like hugging me and talking about getting coaching from me, it's going to completely ruin your like image. Just that what I would, if I could just play poker in a 70 year old woman's body, like, uh, yeah, which I guess, um, who was it who, 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 uh, put on all the face makeup? It was, uh, the Unabomber. Uh, he played the WSAP one time with, um, Phil Locke. Uh, in like full old man makeup to the point where like people really didn't even recognize who he was. It's uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, of course we, we all wish we could, <laughs> we, we, we all wish that we could just roll up looking like to be clear in general, coffee. I'm not looking to trade my body for that of a seven year old <laughs> woman, but uh, in, in that particular incident, it would be, uh, it would be valuable. Yeah. It's going to be the title of this episode <laughs> dreams of dressing up like an old woman to play poker. So here's a question I've been toying around with. And when you think of Nemesis in your poker career, who's either the first person or force of nature that comes to mind? I mean, honestly, I try pretty hard. Like, I think if I'm thinking in terms of Nemesis, that's a sign. It it does happen. Like, it certainly happens. Like, I'm at the poker table and I'm like, I want that guy to lose. I want to get my money back from him. Like, I'm as capable of that as as anyone. But that for me is a sign that I'm I'm tilted and, and not at my best, right? Like that I don't think that's the mindset that you want to be in when you're playing. So uh that for me is like a red flag. Anytime that I'm feeling that kind of like antagonism towards towards somebody where I'm like invested in their losing as opposed to my own winning. Um I mean I was like sometimes my, their losing is incidental to my winning because it's a zero-sum game. But once the objective becomes like wanting to see them lose, that's a sign to me that I'm I'm not in the right mindset. Uh, yeah. You know, like a broader scope of just kind of like in, in the poker world in general, I would say it's it's uncertainty, which is a problem because that's so fundamental to the game. And I think that too is kind of, you know, the ultimately the goal in poker is not to eliminate uncertainty. It's to learn to manage it, you know, to learn to make decisions despite uncertainty. Um, but that's an easier thing to say than to do. And I think most of what I've been doing in poker one way or another for my entire career has been trying to like find some kind of firm ground to stand on of like, but how do we know that's right? Like, and because it, it is crazy, like even, even with regard to preflop, um, we either don't or like only very recently do we really have a sense of, you know, what what should a preflop racing strategy look like? And, you know, for until quite recently, it really was kind of an open question of like, is 3x better than 2.5x better than 2.2x? Should I be raising bigger on the button? Should I be raising smaller on the button? Should I have a limping strategy? You know, like those, for being a thing that you do every single hand, that you know, you and I have both done millions of times to still like have some measure of like, 
guess that's right. Like I kind of do it. I feel okay about it. I'm not like a hundred percent sure I'm approaching this the right way. Like that's kind of wild. Yeah. That's, that's the beauty of this game. And it's a first decision point, right? So if like we're uncertain there, just imagine all of the yeah. other nodes where we're just like, think we know, but don't really know. Yeah. And I do think there's something too. I mean, it's, it's a, in some ways it's kind of like a vapid critique of, of solvers of like, well, you know, if you, if you input the wrong ranges and everything else goes out the window, right? Like I think a little bit you're using solvers wrong if, if that's the, if, if that's how you're using them, but it does matter, you know, <laughs> like the, the fact that like, I think it's important to understand this would be true assuming you're like the, the assumptions you're making about the starting ranges are reasonably true. Now you can, there's other ways that like you could change the starting range and say, well, what if I make my opponent's starting range wider? How does that affect things? What if I make it tighter? How does that affect things? So that's what I mean when I say you're not using the solver, right? Like your objective should not be memorize. What do I do facing a third pot bet on an ace jack six rainbow flop from a cutoff opener? Like that's not, you more want to think of it as if I believe my opponent has a wider opening range, I check raise more often. If I believe they have a tighter opening range, I check raise less often. Like coming away with those kinds of heuristics, I think is ultimately what you want to be looking for. But um, yeah, I do think that's, you know, many people I think are misusing solvers because they're uh, either they have no idea what to use as the starting ranges or they don't appreciate how much the outputs that they're getting are functions of the inputs that they're using, which are themselves uncertain. Yeah. I mean, basically there's a learning curve and you really need to understand poker. And if you don't understand sort of poker and what you're doing, then it's very easy to cause yourself some added suffering and pain by just misapplying, misapplying concepts that you see, or even creating like incorrect heuristics that may lead you astray in certain spots. It's just, uh, yeah, they're, Again, we're learning, we're growing, the software is developing, the solvers are getting more and more powerful, um, which is great. But I think in some sick way, it's almost, man, can I say that it's, I find that it's good that we just don't get all the answers and there is misinformation and like people are executing strategies incorrectly because like it basically just means that like poker is going to continue being poker just over the long, the long haul. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the game would be no fun. I mean, and that is what happened, you know, like uh, chess and backgammon um, have, uh, I mean, they were never really games. I guess backgammon used to be a game where you could play for a lot of money. But um, yeah, I mean, just the, the existence of good solvers for those games has has introduced real problems for, for trying to play those games online, for trying to play those games for substantial amounts of money. And that is in part because those solvers are much easier to use than, than poker solvers are. There's not nearly as much uncertainty in the inputs that go into like a, a, a backgammon or a, a chess solver. Right. And it, it's just very, very complex. And the data points and the variables shift and change and table construction, just like the base layout of, you know, who's on my left, who's on my right, what's the concentration of like the amateurs versus the professionals. All of this comes into play with poker strategy. And yeah, I just, I love that it's so complex that it's really hard to just, you know, solve and the game ends in the same way that, like you said, chess and backgammon playing for, you know, any amount of money online, you're just not, you just can't because you're in danger of somebody just, you know, using a solver and beating your brains in. 
Yeah, and we may see poker, and I imagine you're aware, you know, Phil Galfon's site, Run It Once, uh, they do a thing called Splash the Pot, where like the, the form that Rakeback takes on that site is uh, they just randomly add money to pots sometimes. And that actually throws a lot of solver solutions out the window, because once you make that preflop pot bigger, all your preflop incentives change. And once the preflop ranges have changed, then everything that you think you know about playing like button versus big blind on such and such flop, like once button and big blinds ranges are very different, then you better understand the principles behind that play. Because if all you've done is memorized sort of, you know, check raise these hands, check fold these hands, none of that's going to be correct anymore. So I think it's possible we could, I mean, I know that's something people have been, like I think Bobby Fisher, among others, have been proposing for chess for a long time is maybe um, randomizing the openings or at least like having uh, some kind of opening position. So the, the, the original orientation of the pieces on the board uh, that, that would greatly uh, increase the size of the game tree in chess. And I think we might see things like that happening in, in poker if solvers continue to get, um, if like solvers are going to continue to get more powerful. Um, so yeah, I think we, we may see things that either shift towards variants of poker that are more difficult to solve or some other way of... Um, thwarting solver's ability to ruin the game. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that six max online cash games still look the same way that they looked in 2005 yeah. is kind of problematic, right? Like, why don't we have antes? Why don't we have different structures? Why aren't we testing and learning so that, you know, the site's major goal and responsibility or the thing that they work towards the most is like reducing the skill gap. Well, how about you just do it based on the format of the game that you're spreading? And, and I mean, that just seems to me like a no brainer, but you know, I, I guess who am I? Hopefully it moves that way in the future. I mean, Galfon is run at once somebody that really thinks deeply about the problem and considers possible solutions and basically is trying to, to innovate. And, and I just, I, w I hope that more sites seize that opportunity and uh, run with it just because I, I think it's necessary for the long-term growth and sustainability of online poker and specifically, you know, the game that is near and dear to my own heart, online cash. Yeah, but I think you know, Phil specifically is interested in um, optimizing poker as opposed to these other sites are really interested in optimizing their... No, I mean, not that Phil's not looking to make money off of it, but you know, I think for the other sites, like their goal is maybe not to make poker games better as much to, as to like make them gambler, for instance. Um, and that may not be what you or I are looking for. Um, but from their perspective, it's like they may make more money if they can turn it into more of a, a crapshoot. The What's funny about that, though, <laughs> is like it, it's almost like the innovators paradox, right? Where it's like, they should be working to innovate and add to the complexity and you know reduce the skill gap in ways that make sense based on like the format of game that's being spread. And if they don't, if somebody beats them that has a superior way of playing poker first, they could lose a lot of market share by not investing in that. Because I think the people that gravitate towards poker just in general are not really gamblers. Like they're not just super degenerate gambler. Because if they were... They would have yeah, there's better ways to scratch machine, that itch, right? Than poker. Like, yeah. Exactly. So, like, I don't, I don't think poker players specifically are looking for just crap shoots. So that's the thing that you know could really they could shoot themselves in the foot over the long term uh, by going down that path.
Yeah, I mean, I guess it's sort of like maybe some of this is like a regulatory thing, too, where in, in places where you're allowed to have online poker, but you're not allowed to have online slots, it like the equilibrium kind of becomes for sites to create online poker games that essentially are online slots, but like from a regulatory perspective are not. We're like, no, it's poker. We're dealing cards. <laughs> um, so it's like you are going to make more money probably appealing to the gamblers than like if you have to choose appealing to the gamblers or to appeal to the poker players um, and you don't have to compete with actual online slots, then like you may make more money appealing to the gamblers, especially because some of the professionals, you know, like there are like spin and go professionals or like there are people who learn how to get small edges in these more like gambling variants of the game. And from my perspective, like I'm much more interested in like playing 300 big blind deep cash games than I am in playing like a spin and go or something. But I understand for people where they're just like, it's just like, you know, I have an edge and I'm, you know, I'm not really interested in like the beautiful game of poker. I'm interested in making money and like I can make pretty good money multi-tabling spin and goes. Um, you know, it's like they are going to make money from some professionals that way. So, I mean, maybe there is a market space for someone who's going to do poker right, but I can understand why. Uh, I mean, just like casino, you know, like the poker room does not generally get the primo space on the casino floor, right? That's for the slot machines. So I think, you know, the, the big players, uh, probably their interest is in, in going after the gamblers rather than going after the poker players. Oh, for sure. They want to get them in the door and then, you know, push them to other areas. That's why, like, I don't know if you've, have you been to Thackersville, Oklahoma, the Windstar? I have not. So the Windstar is the my least favorite place that I've traveled to to play poker. We stayed at the hotel itself, and the walk from the hotel to the poker room is like half a mile. I mean, it is, it's like an L shape, and like at the top of the L is the po- is the poker room and at the bottom is the hotel area and it is like oh man i I would get tilted just walking to the poker room because like it's like during the day they're like you know these old human beings who are in their wheelchairs or oxygen they just like they don't give a shit like they're going from one slot machine to the other right across right in front of you um people are just like stopping and like looking around and you got to walk around over like you're constantly almost ramming into people Ugh, I do not like that. But like I said, you know, they make it in the back or wherever it is so that you got to walk through all the other stuff so that you have opportunity to sit down and mess around on a slot machine or do whatever it is that people do when they're in a casino before you hit the poker room. It is nice playing in like some of the California rooms that literally are just poker rooms where you just like walk in the door and you're in the poker room. There's no, you don't have to fight slot machines. You don't have to fight all that other stuff. It's such a pleasant experience relative to uh, having to navigate all that noise of a uh, traditional casino. Yeah, I love California. I, I love the the rooms there. There is still the, the the gambling games, but they're not like, there's no slot machines. So they're just table games, like some blackjack variations and stuff like that. But yeah, the, there's nothing like for me and people like hate on commerce, but like just walking through the doors of commerce and just seeing like the low limit, just all the table, it's just like a sea of of tables and people and like that to me has just always been that's yeah, something that i that i enjoy hearing and 
witnessing. I, say, I, I have not spent a ton of time at the commerce. So, I mean, I could certainly see how I might get sick of it if I spent a lot of time there, but like, I fondly remember the first time I walked into commerce because it was like, you know, I had been playing poker for a long time before I ever went there. And yeah, it is. You're just like, Oh yeah. Like I like the whole vibe of it. I, I, uh, I liked it. I, I did I could certainly see that opinion changing with time, but, um, bottom line, I like the commerce. I, I think that, I think, Lots of perception, but but here's the deal. I think like when you meet enough people that have been playing poker for long enough, at least I get the sense that a lot of them are just miserable human beings in general. <laughs> so like them hating the commerce is just a reflection of their internal state of like, doesn't matter where they would be playing poker or where they're at, they would probably be miserable. So sometimes I take that, uh, I take their opinion with a grain of salt and just like try to have my own experiences and use my own judgment. Yeah, I remember um, this was actually at Lucky Chances, but uh, the first time I ever went there, it was a good illustration of how much poker players will just complain about anything, where um, there was, I guess the, the game I was sitting in maybe only had eight players, and someone was like complaining that there was uh, an open seat, and he was like yelling at them, he's like, we only got eight people, we got an open seat, he's like real upset that there's only eight people there, and then uh, the floor is like, Oh, actually, you got two open seats. It's a ten-handed game now. He's like ten-handed, ten-handed. <laughs> it was like eight, eight was too little, ten was too much. He was <laughs> nine is just perfect. <laughs> what are you trying to do to me? Uh, funny lucky chances story. I've only played there a couple times. Um, most of my time in the Bay Area was at the Matrix. But when I went to Lucky Chances, me and my friend uh, went to play the one to five stud just because. I don't think he had ever played one to five stud. And the only time I had played one to five stud is like, if I decided when I was like 21 years old, that I was just going to get totally wasted and bomb away some money at this small stake stud game. So we go to sit down at the one to five stud and, you know, we're like looking at our cards. We're looking at our cards incorrectly. We're putting our bets in the middle incorrectly. They don't like when you like grab four chips and just kind of like splash them into the pot. They're very particular about how the money goes in. Even the dealer was like giving instructions like, no, you put the chips down right here. This is how it's done. If I raise to five, like if I open to the max, I mean, it was just four 80 year old humans fucking glaring at me like super hard. Um, it was just a hilarious, hilarious, just, it was almost like another world than like where I had come from playing, you know, high stakes, no limit Texas Hold'em to this tiny one to five stud where I, obviously I didn't understand the protocols or the social norms of the game, but, uh, yeah, it's just a funny experience that I'll, I'll always keep with me. Those, those folks just glaring at me for, you know, opening to five. And actually, it kind of reminds me of another one of my favorite poker stories. And part of why I like this one is I think it's like, it's not at all funny to people who have not like spent time in a card room, but I at least, uh, I, I think it's pretty funny if you have. So um, I was with my friend, uh, Nate, who co-hosts the Thinking Poker podcast with me. And uh, we had the bad idea. This is the first year that they had ever hosted the Colossus at the WSOP. So it's like the largest WSOP field they've ever had. And uh, we weren't actually playing that tournament. We were like, oh, let's go you know, play a cash game together somewhere. Uh, not realizing like every poker room in Las Vegas has like a four-hour waiting list for their cash game. So the only place we were able to get a seat was at the... Um, it was the Monte Carlo. Like we got a, a seat in a one-two game together at the Monte Carlo. So uh, 
no, we're both like serious. It's like, I can't really just sit down and fuck around the poker. Like that's not fun for me to just sort of, it's like, I'm still kind of trying to play well as is Nate, but like neither of us is like, you know, we're just not, we're not sweating it that hard. And Nate makes like maybe a slightly questionable, like gets it all in with an open-ended straight draw on the turn where it's like, it's just certainly not like a terrible decision. Uh, may have been a little gambling and he, he sucks out. And you know, the other guy is like, obviously kind of upset about it. And, um, I don't know if he even said anything to him, but you could just, you know, you know, you know the vibe, but you could just stare at daggers <laughs> kind of thing. And um, the the a couple of minutes later, the server comes around and uh, asks people what they want to drink, and Nate orders an iced tea, and the other guy just mutters under his breath, "Iced tea." <laughs> <laughs> of course, this guy would like iced tea. Iced tea. God. <laughs> Man, it's funny, like. People, people are just funny. Uh, I've, I, I'm actually with you in that it's hard for me to just kind of throw it, just do like obviously atrocious stuff. There was one time at the commerce where a bunch of us were playing higher stakes and we, we just decided that we were going to start drinking and relax a little bit. And our idea of relaxing meant that we're going to get plastered and then we're going to go play one, two against each other. And we're just going to start jamming in like $60 or whatever the one, two starting stack was. Um, so it's like eight of us, it's a nine handed table. There are eight of us with full starting stacks and we're just like shoving pre. So like, we're just getting it in the dealer. Like these are $1 chips too. So it's like eight, it's like $480 in $1 chips, every single pot. So the pots are just massive. The dealer's like pushing the takes them like two or three times and some poor soul decided they were going to play one, two, right? So they sit down with us who are all drinking and just shoving every hand. And they sat down, they played for three hands. They got Kings. They got it all in with us. Nine, nine ways pre (laughs) and uh, they lost and went straight to the floor, (laughs) told them what we were doing. And the floor actually made us stop. Um, They made us, they said that we can't, we can't just shove every hand pre-flop. So the one dude got his Kings cracked and basically, yeah, basically in, ended our fun. But, um, it, it's just always funny for me to think about that. Like, man, that's like the best game of all time. If you're just kind of sitting there waiting for a good spot to like nine X your money. But, uh, yeah, people, people want things done the right way. They don't want things in a way that makes sense to them. And when you, when you, uh, violate that, you got trouble coming your way. Yeah, I guess that is a sort of just like the difference between a recreational poker player and a professional poker player, someone who's really just like geared towards making the money. Because obviously, like you or I in that situation would be like, hell yeah, this is the greatest one-two game that ever existed. Like, let's go. Um, But I can kind of understand why if like if someone showed up to play poker and like what he wanted to do was he wanted to exchange money for the experience of playing poker and like he expects to lose money when he's when he's playing like that guy might have much better ways of monetizing his time than like sitting, waiting for Kings in a wild one, two game, you know, like if he's like, you know, whatever he does for in his day job. So I can kind of understand his, his, yeah, I, 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 I'd like to try to put myself in the mindset of um, not even so much in that case to be like empathetic to somebody, but just, you know, when you are playing in a game where you want to make money from somebody to understand what are they there for? Because I think what you said before, you know, a lot of people, not that I've never played with someone who seemed like maybe just had a gambling problem, but I prefer not to. 
And I don't think that is the case. Like for most losing players at uh, certainly at higher stakes, I think a lot of them, they may not be fully aware of like how much they're losing, but I don't think most of them are delusional about the fact that they're not favorites in the game that they're playing in. So the question I think is important to understand is why are they there? Right. I mean, they're not there to make money. What is it that they're looking for? And I think this partly gets to why people are so grumpy is I think for a lot of those people, they're really looking, it's sort of like forced socialization. It's like people are forced to sit around the table and, and talk to them. And that's a need that like most human beings have is to have like other human beings interact with you. And I mean, you're probably not going to get the best people if they're people who are like paying for those social interaction, right? like people who are really pleasant to be around have like wives and family and, you know, like they, people do it voluntarily. So the people who are paying money in exchange for someone to have to sort of like listen to their jokes. And that's like, that's the service that you're providing really, you know, uh, in, in some ways you're not unlike an escort. You're, you're being paid for companionship. Oh man. It's funny. By you, I mean we. (laughs) Yeah, by you. By by me, we we mean all the poker players. It's funny that you use those exact words because I have an opportunity that may or may not be materializing in the the near future of traveling across the country to kind of coach. And I have my nightly routine that the CPG listeners may be familiar with, uh, my edibles at eight. And this is so that I can sleep and by about 9.30, you're not going to be getting much good information out of me. Like, I'm not going to be, uh, you know, I'm not the most reliable human at 9.30 at night. I'm just kind of goofy and getting ready to go to bed. And I get a text from a friend of mine, and he's like, hey, can you do this? Uh, can you travel and, and coach to LA? Like, what's your day rate? And I'm like, I'm just, I'm super high. So I've like tried to figure out like, I don't even know what my day, I've never done this before. So I don't know what I would charge. And he's like, is this such a hard question, Brad? I'm like, yes, it is. I'm struggling here. Like you, you don't understand my mental state. And what was the point of this story? Because I'm like, I'm, I lost my whole segment. Uh, I about like why recreational players play poker, what, what they're, uh, how you're like an escort. Uh, an escort. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Yeah. So he keeps pressing me. I'm like, let me tell you tomorrow, you know, what my rate is. Let me think about it when I have a mental clarity. And he's like, dude, just give me a number. Like, give me a number right now. I'm like, man, I feel so pressured right now. Like, he's like, yeah, like, just you need to tell me something right now. And I'm like, I kind of feel like a prostitute. Like, you're, (laughs) I kind of feel like a prostitute. You're asking me, like, how much money is it to spend an entire day with me? And I, on a second note, I I kind of like it. (laughs) I kind of like. Having coming up with a price for, you know, just my my awareness near this human being across the country for a day. But yeah, it's I think that like spending time with people and social interaction, it's a part of the gig. And, you know, that's why people play live poker to interact with other living human beings. But I do kind of understand because like, and I mean, Carlos, like we were talking about before, uh, I think this is why he doesn't like live poker is he doesn't want to have to deal with all that stuff. And, you know, he, he responds to that by just not playing live poker, which I fully respect. It does kind of annoy me when people, you know, professional players, people who are there to make money, want to, like, show up and then not do any of that work. And so just sort of, like, sit there with, I mean, and I know this is, like, a stereotype, but with the hoodies and headphone on and, like, refuse to, they won't straddle, they won't do this or that. And it's, like, you're, like, they're really just freeloading, you know, like, they're they're sort of 
um, they're trying to get their half of the exchange without providing the people who are, and I mean, it's, you have to conceptualize it in the right way. Like, I don't, I think they think their job is to play a game. And so like, I'm just here to play a game. I'm not here to talk to you. I'm like, well, that's what online poker is for. Like, if you want to play live poker where you probably have a better hourly rate, that's like, that's the extra work that you're doing or the different work that you're doing. So to show up there and like refuse or sort of roll your eyes or make fun of, of the people who are essentially paying you to be there, um, I think is like, not only is it bad for the game, but I think it's kind of fundamentally unethical. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just not a good way to treat another human being, just yeah, first, exactly. firstly in general. And, and secondarily, you know, poker, if the goal is to keep it sustainable, then people need to have good experiences while they're playing. That's just the reality of it. And, you know, in my opinion, like like you said, I think that it does come with the territory. Um, had Bart Hansen on, who I asked the Magic One question, if he could change anything about poker with a Magic One, what would it be? And he his response was to basically get rid of the, uh, <laughs> as he called them, the foreigners that come into LA poker that basically just come in like a pack and then all sign up on the li- on the wait list for like the same game six in a row and then you know there's like five of them at one table it's basically like they're just here to take from the poker economies wherever it is that they're at they're not really giving much back and i do think that that is pretty harmful to just the game in general and you know i, I don't have anything against foreigners right like <laughs> i love i love people coming into our country um and just you know yeah well, and, and the fundamental problem isn't that they're from a different country it's just that they're from a different because i think you say the same thing with with traveling tournament series where if you're like a regular cash game player in a certain area and there are you know people that are sort of like they're essentially your clients. You know, outsider. Like they're, they're outsiders, I think, is is the... Yeah, and, and they're not invested in the health of your like local... So it's sort of like you have people who are, like I said, I mean, they, they are like clients. You know, you're, you're making money because they're losing money at poker and you're trying to make sure that they're continuing to be happy with that arrangement. Um, and then if there's like the WPT or something comes in, like a bunch of pros who don't usually play in your area show up, they don't have the same incentive towards like customer satisfaction that you have. So they can sort of just roll their eyes at those, be like, ah, oh, just, you know, be obnoxious to those people because they're going to go on to another city the next day. And like, they don't really care whether that guy ever comes back to play poker again. Like in the long term, it kind of affects them, but like not in the same way that if you're you know, playing an economy where you only have maybe like, 40 or 50 regular high stakes players, like if one or two of those people quits, you know, that's a significant chunk of your like player pool that you're you're losing. And so you're pretty invested in you know making sure that those people are getting whatever it is that they're looking to get out of playing with you. And uh, I think you know the, the the same problem that he's describing with uh foreign cash game players coming in. I mean, that's c- kind of a commoner specific thing. I don't think there's too many casinos that have that dynamic of people traveling just to sort of bum hunt the cash games there i think it's la la specifically over yeah, like the last so. three or four years but um yeah i think that's much more of a dynamic with tournaments where people just kind of a tournament series will sweep through and a bunch of out-of-town pros will come in um often be kind of detrimental to the atmosphere of the poker room i mean some of them are exciting you know sometimes people are like oh holy shit chris moneymakers here in my you know, and those people like they do explicitly get paid to make those kinds of appearances Right. And it's just, I guess for me, the the number one rule to live by is just be a cool person and don't ruin everybody's experience with, you know, 
your outbursts and shitty attitude and just treat people with respect. And ultimately, if you do that, then everything else just kind of falls into place from there. Yeah. And I guess I'll say too, just so I don't sound too preachy, this is all aspirational for me. Like I'm not going to claim I've never been rude to anybody at the table. Um, it's just like, that's, that's how I want to be. And that's how I aspire to be. And that's how my best self is. Yeah. That's the ideal, right? right. We all, we all fall short. We all have our worst days and, or even just, you know, a regular day that shit don't go the way that you want it to. And you, <laughs> you react, right. But that's the aspiration is just to be cool, be pleasant to be around and hopefully make sure that everybody has a good experience playing cards. Um, and two, just making sure that everybody has a good experience playing cards is just more fun and it makes you feel better. Like at least it does for me. Uh, I don't think, I, I think I would feel bad if I just made everybody feel worse all the time yeah. about playing cards with me. Yeah. And like you say, it is good for you also. I mean, like I've noticed, uh, obviously we've all been kind of more isolated in, in the last year, but, um, I think poker was always for me, one of the like main ways that I interacted with other people. And, um, yeah, so just like not having that, especially people who are not in my like inner circle, you know, just like to interact with strangers or people who are different from you in, in any number of ways. Um, different ages. I mean, that's pretty rare. I think for a lot of people in the United States to like have friends who are substantially older than they have friends who are like 30 years older than they are. But that's not that uncommon. Another thing, if you're like a regular in a poker room, like you probably do know some guys who are like in their sixties or whatever. And like, you've been hanging out with them and like outside of maybe you are, but either way, just like to sort of have that kind of regular interaction intergenerationally. Uh, I don't think too many, and I guess church sort of provides that, but not a lot of Americans are going to church anymore. Yeah, like I think poker is sort of a rare thing to have that kind of uh, intergenerational dynamic to it. Yeah, I mean, 2004, I moved down to Florida to play poker. And besides my friend that, you know, we were on the journey and the path together, um, besides him, the person who penetrated our inner circle that we were friendly with at our local, can you even call it a card room? I don't know if you can call a ship that goes out to international waters, <laughs> uh, a card room, but on the boat, you know, uh, the, the person that we interacted with the most was this guy, Jack Crawford, who was, you know, and it, it was a re retired and 72 years old or so. And like, we would spend a lot of time just talking to Jack and talking about poker strategy and just interacting. And there were times, which is just kind of hilarious to think. And I don't know again, when this would ever happen. And uh, and, and uh, any other occupation where like we went to the grocery store one time at like 3 30 a.m because you know we're just heathen poker players that stayed up all night every night and jack's there he's like shopping for fruit at 3 30 like <laughs> he's like he's like the the poker degenerate that's also on like our same time schedule and now that i think about it like that's a pretty rare thing to yeah to, to be friends with somebody who's in their seventies and, you know, cross paths with them at four in the morning in the fruit aisle at the local <laughs> grocery store. Yeah. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy too tight. And they know what you have too loose and you're easy to run over. Free Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your preflop game and creating true range advantage. 
eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. Before boot camp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years, somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site. Kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And preflop boot camp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in boot camp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what rangers should look like and what hands should be played and what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post boot camp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up. Um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to, to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re- really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have 70,000 hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month, and your link to join is chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode. All right, so let's move to let's move to lightning round here. Have you made any purchases in the last year that have been impactful to your poker game? Doesn't necessarily have to be like, you know, paying for coaching with Carlos, although it could be, could be just something that, you know, gives you more energy, more focus. Uh, I have a kind of interesting example. I'm standing right now on a this sort of rubberized like standing mat, which is designed to be, uh, you know, I, I, like standing desks have kind of become all the rage and I don't quite have a desk, but I have a standing setup. And then this thing has, it's sort of like, textured so you can like stand in different ways and uh, rather than just being a flat surface it kind of has like little like bumps and ridges and, and hills and things so i think it encourages you to like change up your posture and uh seems to be good for me i enjoy standing on it so that's and, and you know obviously a lot of what i'm doing when i'm standing is uh playing poker or, or coaching poker have you noticed positive effects like 
comparatively to before? Uh, I mean, I haven't done an, a, an a double blind study. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I feel better. I think it's, it's probably good for my, um, my stamina at least to, you know, just be using different muscles and uh, like not getting a sore. Hey, I think there's value in even feeling like you feel better. Even yeah, absolutely. It's the, just the placebo, placebo effect is, uh, you know, as long as you're getting the results, like who cares? Yeah. Right. Like who cares if it's not real, if it's just in your head, what's a poker related thing that other people rave about that hasn't worked for you? And why did it, why do you think it didn't work? I don't know if I have a real good sense of what people are are raving I mean, about. I mean, I'm, I'm not standing very on a into... bumpy map, mat right now. So <laughs> there, there has to be something you've tried that didn't work out. Um, I mean, I've, I've never really enjoyed watching poker period. Um, and in particular, like I've really just missed the boat on like Twitch and streaming and, and all that. Like I've done a little bit of streaming myself and didn't really enjoy doing it, but like, I actually, I mean, it might actually be something I think I probably would get a lot. Like I know there's really good players who are streaming where like, it's probably pretty valuable to be able to like watch them play. But, um, I just, it, it doesn't work for me in the sense that I, I can't get into it. I don't enjoy doing it. I'd rather pay money for training videos than, you know, get the like free, because like, then I guess the cost you're paying is like, if you're like paying for a training video, then you're kind of, you're exchanging money and you're getting like concentrated, you know, here's the, here's the good stuff versus, you know, you're not in many cases paying anything to watch the people on, on Twitch, but I guess the cost you're paying them is in time because you're watching them do a bunch of trivial stuff. I mean, there's like, okay, I would have folded that seven deuce offset under the gun also. Like that was not eye opening to me. Um, so yeah, I guess that's like the, the downside of it. But uh, I know that's kind of the, the big trend in like poker content creation now. And a lot of people, you know, I will have students who will be like, oh, do you watch you know, this person on Twitch? Do you watch that person on Twitch? Or like they want to talk about it, even like really big, you know, like when the, um, the Polk Negrani match was going on, you know, people were like, oh, what about this big hand? There's like, there were certain hands that were kind of like the big discussion in the poker community for a day or two. And I think some of the people I coached, like, I mean, reasonably assumed that I would like be aware of those things. And, and I was not. Yeah. I mean, so my Tactical Tuesday co-host, uh, John watches all of the poker vloggers and he will tell me, he's like, Brad, you need to get so-and-so on the podcast. You, you just have to. And I'm like, who are they? Like, I've never seen that name in my life. Yeah, like, because- oh, they have 300,000 <laughs> followers. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're just winning every tournament in existence for the past yeah. <laughs> four months. And I'm like, dude, when do I have time to like keep up with the, the NTT scene? Like, you know how busy I am. You know what I'm working on. Um, and plus, at the end of the day, after being immersed in poker for, from like 9 a.m. until 7 p.m., you know, I... I want to unwind. I don't want right. to. Watch, I don't want to watch yeah. a poker. Vol- that, that is not my idea of entertainment. Is doing more poker. No, it, mine neither. There's plenty of great stuff and content on Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and HBO Max that fill that void. Um, way better than you know watching watching a poker vlog. Nothing against poker vloggers. Um, it's just. I think they're doing fantastic things for the game. I just personally am not interested in watching them. Yeah, that, I feel the the exact same. They're doing they're doing the work. It's just not for me. Um, with that said, uh, like eventually I do hope to have like a chasing poker greatness vlogger for my YouTube. So <laughs> with that said, for the listener, I hope that you enjoy vloggers. <laughs> <laughs> you may you may have the option to tune into one in the near future. What are some things that you wish you said no to more often in your poker career? 
I've gotten better about this. And I, I used to just sort of accept uh, anyone who is interested in coaching where I was like, yeah, if you want to do coaching, like I'll do coaching with you. And um, I've found it's, it's pretty rare that I need to say no to somebody, but I will say that like the maybe two to 3% of the requests that I get, I'm just sort of like, I don't think I'm interested in working with you um, for a variety of reasons. And it is nice. Some of that is sort of like the privilege of having enough, you know, that I can, I can afford to be choosy like that. But um, it is like, there are just a few people who are difficult to work with and it's, it is, it's just like nice to be able to be like, no, I just don't want to deal with that. Yeah. I mean, like basically a, a small percentage of clients are going to cause the majority of the headaches and the majority of the yeah, annoyances. Exactly. And if you can, you know, fire them, it, it's just, way better for you over the long term and and just preemptively because like i'm very bad at firing people like once i have a relationship with somebody it's going to be very very difficult for me to say like i don't think this is working out so <laughs> i think it's more like just noticing from the get-go like oh red flag just don't even don't even go down this road um yeah i had, I had, I had a- somebody recently who um he had he, he had contacted me and then he like linked to this post that he had made on on two plus two about his like poker aspirations or something and he was right now i don't know he was playing like one cent two cent or something i'm like he wanted to be you know make a million dollars from poker in the next like five years and i was like i mean i i think that's just like a very unreasonable like i'm not saying it's impossible but like i think it's a pretty unreasonable goal and i think that's like the wrong way to be thinking about like poker and coaching and i just think you have kind of like unrealistic expectations and then he like kind of immediately came like it just like validated all my like my my just like immediate red flag of like i don't know if this is a good idea and then like as soon as i i told him i didn't think it was a good idea he just like sent me several like really angry so like profane emails where i was like this is only making me feel better about not accepting you know yeah you your radar was on point there one one thing that i do for my you know just to basically create a filter for private coaching is whenever somebody signs up, they can't just buy from my website anymore. I, although I do need to update the coaching landing page, but that's a different story for a different day. But they have to click through. They fill out a, a basically an intake form or an application telling me their goals, what they want to do. And then they schedule a consult. But when they click through to schedule the consult, there is a giant warning page that they f- see first. That is like warning if this is your expectation, X, Y, Z, if you think that getting coaching is like just going to be a magic bullet and that you don't have to do the work, if your expectation is that I'm going to hold your hand and make you do you know, the homework and the stuff that's required, I'm not the right person, basically just like align items of like deal breakers for me and they have to read that first before they can book the consult. I found that that's, that's been great in just like naturally weeding out folks who have unrealistic expectations, or just that are not good fits with my coaching style or method methodology. Yeah, I, I bet your podcast is doing a lot of that work also, where like if that's how people are finding you, because it, you, like before I was doing the podcast, I guess you know a lot of people were just finding me by Googling like poker coaching or something. And I just, you know, I'm not interested. Like the, the chances, it's just like a much lower chance that we're going to end up being a good match. Like at the very least, I would want you to go and like listen to the podcast a little bit first or watch some training videos I've made or do something to like get a sense of what you're going to be getting from me before you sign up. Because just kind of coming in cold, I just think there's, you know, people could have a lot of different things in mind when they think like poker coach. And I want them to know what that thing is going to be for me. But I also don't want to have like, 
uh, you know, sometimes people are like, well, let's do like a free one hour thing first and we'll see if it works out. I'm like, no, I'm not really interested in doing that either. Like there's plenty of ways to get a sense of what coaching with me is going to be like. I have plenty of material out there that's free to listen to. Uh, and most of the people that are coming to me are people who are already familiar with me from the podcast or whatever else and have like self-selected as thinking this person is going to be a good match. And, and they're almost always right. So I really see no reason why I would, you know, as long as I've got plenty of those people coming in, uh, I don't really see a need to just, you know, do uh, blind dates essentially anymore. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a relationship. Like, I mean, it's funny that you said blind dates because I was about to talk about relation. It's a relationship between student and coach. And like, there's this level of trust that's kind of necessary. You know, the student needs to trust the coach and they need to do the work. And, and like, if it just starts off on the wrong foot or you're not a good match, then it's not worth it from a coaching perspective. Like the trade of money, my prostituting myself for my time just it's not it's not a good trade for me if it's not enjoyable if you know it's not we're not going to make any progress if we're not going to see any fruit um it's just not not worth it from the coaching perspective so yeah it's uh we have to start on the right foot and basically when you do though and you have that trust and you have that relationship great things happen like that's when the students and the coach too both just the value is just through the roof. Both of you, you know, you gain friends, you gain somebody that is, you know, in your corner as the student and the coach gains somebody that they're cheering for and rooting for and like super pumped when they have success just in their poker career. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're framing that also as, as a plus for the coach because it is, you know, I feel like I, I talk about this a lot. So maybe I said this last time I was on the show too, but, um, you know, poker, just the actual playing of poker is, you know, literally like a dog eat dog. You know, if I win, someone else has to lose kind of, kind of thing. And I guess we talked before about, um, ideally it can be kind of a win-win situation where like one person is getting the sort of enjoyment of, uh, you know, sitting around the table with you and you're getting their money or, you know, like there's, so there's kind of ways it can be win-win, but like fundamentally you're trying to cause other people to lose so that you can win. And so it's nice being in like a coaching relationship where their wins are also your wins, right? Where, where the two of you are working towards a common goal rather than at odds with each other. Yeah. The collaboration in the poker space, I think, you know, because like you said, we're, we're predators, we're wolves out there who are just battling with a singular goal of, you know, making better decisions than the people that we're playing against. And that's sort of just, adversarial nature of the game can kind of wear you down to where like when you have somebody to root for, like there's, it's exciting. It's fun. It's fulfilling. Um, just a lot of, a lot of good things just from the coaching side. What are some things that you wish you had said yes to more often? Uh, I wish that I had moved up in stakes sooner. You know, when I started playing and like, I mean, I did not have a lot of money when I started playing in like 2004, 2005. Even when I did make a good amount of money at poker, the idea of, you know, like I know there were some people who were very comfortable just like, oh, these games, you know, like, okay, if I can beat one, two, I can beat five, 10, let's go. And I was just like, partly, I think I was a little intimidated by the idea that, like, oh, people playing five, 10 must be so good. And I mean, in retrospect, that was not <laughs> true. But um, part of it too is just like the idea of losing several thousand, even if I like had the money at that point, because I had won it in smaller games, it was still just like, I wasn't really fully invested in like being like, it still kind of felt like a, 
uh, like too good to be true sort of thing where I was like, I need to like hold on to this money. Like I can't like put that back at, at risk. And um, yeah, just that like kind of like unwillingness to, um, to take those, those, I mean, I don't even know it was necessarily the wrong decision. I probably would have made a lot more money if I had done it, but I might not have, you know, maybe I would have uh, gone bust and, or just not had the, um, not had the stomach for it. But Doubtful. I do kind of wonder, you know, we often talk about poker being this really democratic thing where it's like, oh, you just have to be good enough. And like poker doesn't care what color you are. Poker doesn't care how much money you have. It's all about, you know, it's just like a great equalizer. It's just how good are you? That's all. And I mean, I think that's not entirely wrong, but I do think that just like in, in anything else, like, yeah, I think if I had come from a wealthier background where it was like, well, you know, if I lose a couple thousand dollars, no big deal. Like there's always more where that came from. I can move back in, with, you know, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, I think it is a little bit easier for people to take risks that are plus EV if they feel like they have more of a cushion. Absolutely. And uh, so far, I haven't had anybody on the show that's regretted playing bigger stakes too early in their career. Maybe because those people just kind of flamed yeah, out a huge and don't, don't play poker. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't play poker anymore. Maybe that, that's a reason why people don't say that. But by and large, I, I think that like testing ourselves and playing bigger, for me... I've always dealt with risk aversion in, in that like growing up sort of, you know, relatively poor and not really understanding money and not really coming from any money or knowing how to deal with like big wins and big losses. Uh, I think, I do think that like, that's the thing that held back me, held me back over my poker career. And I also had the same thought of like, I wish I would have moved up. I wish I would have played bigger much sooner. And I'm even having those thoughts today of like, even again, let's talk about the student coach relationship, right? So John who does tactical Tuesday, I mean, he is such a breath of fresh air in like, he just plays and wants to test himself and wants to see like how far he can go. And, you know, he's talked about going to play with, you know, the LA gang after live at the bike, right? The 2550 game with all the people that are playing on live at the bike. He just wants to go and play. And that to me is so motivating and encouraging just to see in like a, another human being that's like, I want to test myself. Like, I want to see what I'm made of. I want to see how far I can go. Like, that's put me in the space of like, hold up. Like, no, I, I want to be a part of that. I don't want to just watch you. Like, I want to also test myself and I want to move up this. I want to play bigger too, right? To see what I'm made of because, you know, Andrew, I'm 37 years old none of us are getting much younger. And so I think I, I would just rather find out what I'm made of before, yeah, before the curtains close. But yeah, it's just, uh, I think that it's something that we can still strive to work towards. But when you have somebody that's like just that driven and motivated and just down for the challenge of it, it it's infectious. It's something that like, yeah, he's given me great value just as his coach in that way. Glad to hear that. All right. So have you ever strongly believed something in poker only to reverse course later on? And if so, what led to that change of belief? Yeah, I used to feel pretty strongly about the idea that any bet you make needs to be clearly categorized as either a value bet or a bluff. And um, really it's been... I mean, I was already in the process of unlearning that, but I think it was really writing uh, my books that where I like fully convinced myself how wrong that is, where it's now, you know, my, my thinking is you know, fully along the spectrum of 
in the middle just blurs entirely where you, know, you think about uh check raising like 10 nine of hearts on an eight seven three heart heart board it's like you probably have the best hand like you're ahead of a lot of stuff but at the same time you want almost any hand to fold uh and like ace king is like that brief line you know there's a lot of spots where it's like it doesn't there are certain bets, you know, like the most polarized bets where it's like, okay, I definitely want bulls. I'm in, I'm drawing dead if I'm called or like I have, I have the immortal nuts and like, I just want to get called. I'm gaining nothing at all from folds, but you know, almost every bet, especially in early streets that you make, you know, to some degree, it's getting its value from both calls and folds. And really the most important bets tend to be the ones that do both. And we were talking before about not having a high out of position C betting frequency. And the hands you know, in these spots where you're supposed to have a pretty low C betting frequency, the hands that tend to do the most betting, at least you know, in equilibrium kind of space, are um, exactly that kind of hand, like uh, you know, pocket tens on nine eight three. That sort of hand where you're like, I'm doing very well when called. You know, there's lots of worse hands that will call me, but I'm also benefiting a lot from folds because there's a lot of ways that I could lose the pot if I allow more cards to come out. So those tend to be the hands. Like when you are betting only like 20% of your range, it's often like concentrated around those hands. Um, and I think, you know, better understanding that concept has, um, that's maybe been my biggest, it, I don't know if it's really an aha thing because it was like a slow, it wasn't like a single, like, oh, now I get it. But just kind of like fully appreciating what that means or kind of like how often the most important bets are not clearly distinguishable as value bets or bluffs. Um, and, and the understanding where both, where all the value of a particular bet comes from, you know, how it derives its EV has been uh, very useful. Oh man, I, I love that. That's great. And uh, yeah, just two more questions. We'll get you out of here. You mentioned writing your book. And so we'll use that to segue. Are you working on any projects currently that are near and dear to your heart? I have not started a new book. Uh, I, you know, I, I guess actually the last time I was on the show probably was right around the time I finished up the second one, now that I think about that. And at this point, I'm not really inclined to because I feel like I spent so much of the last year plus, like, <laughs> you know, sitting around the computer, like, not, it's like, I kind of want, what, like, once I'm kind of vaccinated and in a better position to, like, do things, I want to focus more on doing those things. And it's enough of a challenge for me to get myself to do things in the first place that creating a new impetus of like, Oh, I have this book I could be working on. Like I'm always kind of fighting my like natural introvert, not always fighting. I mean, sometimes I just you know, let them win, but like there are like natural introvert tendencies. And uh, I, I feel like I want to be in a mode now where I'm encouraging myself to get out there more. Um, so I, I, I kind of actively avoid, like I've, I've definitely had the idea in my head of like, oh, hey, you know, you can start working and this would be a good idea. It's a good idea. Like I have a lot of ideas kicking around in my head, but I kind of want to be in uh, a less like work focused um, mindset for a little while. Well, it's interesting that in having no project to work on, your project is just reintegrating yourself with society. Yeah, there you right? go. <laughs> that's the, that, that's <laughs> the project. Um Along with, of course, you know, doing what you do on the Thinking Poker podcast. And uh, the final question is, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience, if they want to learn more about you, where can they find you on the World Wide Web? Uh, the short answer to that would be uh, thinkingpoker.net or uh, at thinkingpoker on Twitter. That's sort of a, the place where you'll find everything, which is podcast information about coaching. Um, there's also, I mean, I would probably suggest you listen to the regular podcast first, but we did recently start a, um, strategy only podcast. So a regular podcast that sort of has a strategy segment and then 
We also have a guest where we may or may not, it may, you know, might not be a strategy heavy conversation that we have with the guests. Uh, and then we, we started for uh, Patreon supporters at uh, patreon.com slash thinking poker daily. Uh, we do like a daily 10 to 15 minute episode, which is just pure strategy. And uh, those come out five days a week for people who choose to support us on Patreon, which um, I think it's kind of interesting. Just like I'm not aware of any other poker people who are doing anything on, on Patreon. Um, it's so, funny I'm, that I'm you sure they're out there, that. but. Because the oh, next are you? The, I, no, no, no I, <laughs> okay. I, I, I'm not. I, I think the Just Hands Poker experimented with Patreon, and I think that also. Well, I know I support um, DGAF, who does sessions on Patreon specifically, and I'm pretty sure that's the only way that you can support DGAF outside of, you know, buying his poker rags, T-shirts, and merchandise and stuff like that. But. Um, who has thinkingpoker.com? Like what, what's the, how, how do you, how do you get that URL, Andrew? Who, who's like hoarding it for themselves? I, I think I might have it now, actually. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not responsible for these things. Um, <laughs> but yeah, at the time that I, I got it, it was not available. Um, I, I think I did eventually manage to so I, I think it now redirects to thinkingpoker.net, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Wow. So thinkingpoker.com redirects to thinkingpoker.net, not the other way around. Wow. <laughs> this is <laughs> blowing my mind, sir. Blowing my mind. Um, it's been great having you on, man. Uh, best of luck reintegrating yourself with humankind and congratulations on your vaccines. And yeah, let's catch up again in the near future. All right, thank you. Good talking to you. My pleasure, man. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.